Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Jewel. All we gotta do is dance, sing, laugh, you want it, you want it. Jewel has sold more than 30 million albums worldwide. Her first record is one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. And if you were listening to the radio in 1995, you know all these songs. Who Will Save Your Soul, You Were Meant For Me, all the Lilith Fair classics. And this year, she released her first record in seven years, Free Wheelin' Woman. Jewel and I talk about what it was like for her growing up and eating on a remote Alaskan homestead. And Clay Newcomb, host of the Bear Grease podcast, will join the show to talk about cooking with bear fat, an ingredient that was once a huge part of the American tradition. On that note, I want to warn you that there is a story about eating an animal that might be upsetting to some listeners. It's in the third act of the show, and I will give you a warning when it's coming up so you can choose to skip past it. But first, my conversation with Jewel. Let me check your volume really quick. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Check test one, two. Mm. Check test. I'm so ornery. I just refuse to answer direct questions. Can you imagine <laughs> raising me or being married to me? <laughs> when you said check, I'm like, oh, she had checks for breakfast. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, you don't have to follow my rules. That works. You might already know bits and pieces of Jewel's story. She grew up in Alaska. At one point, she was homeless. But her real story was often twisted by the media. The romantic narrative that she was living in her car while trying to make it as a singer just isn't true. When you were 19, you turned down a million-dollar record deal. Why? I'll have to go back a tiny bit with Mm -hmm. a little bit of context. I moved out at 15. My mom left when I was eight. My dad took over raising my brothers and I. Uh, He did a pretty good job, but he also was an alcoholic and abusive. So I moved out at 15 knowing that statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle. And I didn't want to be a statistic. I, I wanted to believe that being so young with so much life ahead of me that there was a shot for me to be different. And so I set about sort of what I called my happiness mission was happiness, a learnable skill if it wasn't taught in my home. And I did pretty good until I was 18 in San Diego and a boss propositioned me to have sex with him. And when I turned him down, he wouldn't give me my paycheck. And then I couldn't pay my rent. I started living in my car and then my car got stolen. And that's how I ended up homeless. Flash forward a year, you know, against all odds, I got discovered by a record label many record labels. There was bidding wars after me. And I read a book called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. And I learned about how the business works just functionally, mechanically, you know, and basically that an advance was a loan and you had to pay it back through record sales. And that meant if I was going to have a million dollar advance, it meant I had to sell so many albums Hmm. to add up enough pennies to make back that million that it was like having a bounty on my head. I had in that year just started learning how to be happy, even though I was homeless. I started getting a grip on my panic attacks and my agoraphobia and my eating disorder and my shoplifting. The levels of attitude that I was dealing with psychologically (laughs) and having a relief, like a real physical relief from those pressures, no money was worth it. Nothing was worth it. I was very realistic. You take somebody with my background and God forbid somebody like me gets famous, 
I mean, that's every movie we've seen of every musician. I mean, it's just another statistical probability that I would do drugs and die. And so it was really just to be authentic, realizing that authenticity was unleverageable. You can't leverage somebody that can live on nothing. You can't take something from somebody that values their peace of mind more than a material object. For some reason, just having the clarity on that at such a young age caused me to navigate my career in a really specific way. Jewel grew up in Homer, Alaska, and for most of her childhood, her family didn't have indoor plumbing or electricity. Yeah, my family were homesteaders, legit, real homesteaders, pioneers. My dad's childhood were horse and wagons and only eating what you could kill or can. And I was raised primarily that way out on the homestead. Uh, My whole family is musical. My grandmother had been an aspiring opera singer and poetess. They all were raised in the woods in the middle of nowhere, and they would write to entertain themselves and to heal, frankly. Your family didn't pray at the dinner table, but they did something else. Yeah, we sang. My family was very, very poor, but our heirlooms were songs. You know, like my son is 11 now, and we sing one of the first folk songs I was taught as a little kid. And it's really special to get to sing that with him. In the wilds of Jules, Alaska, there was no grocery store. Everything they ate came from the land. We had a garden, you know, so we had potatoes, a lot of vegetables. We would can them in the fall so that we could have access to to them, you know, throughout the winter. There's a lot of fish. We did subsistence fish netting. Um, You have a license for it. Mm. Uh, You set out a huge net at low tide and then the tide comes in and back out. And then you just go pick fish out of your net. I remember getting like 75 king salmon per tide. You know, a lot of cleaning fish, a lot of gutting fish, a lot of canning fish, a lot of freezing fish. We had a cow that we would milk and we had fresh milk and butter. We would butcher about one cow a fall, you know, so you'd shoot it in the head, slit its throat, bleed it out, hang it up, skin it, process it. Um, We used everything. You know, I was the kid that went to school with cow tongue sandwiches, you know, and (laughs) I'd call it tuna fish so nobody really knew. (laughs) Um, I have so many memories. Like I was just thinking the other day how one of the I don't know if you want to talk about dead animals. It might not be what you you guys really want to talk about. I'm fine with that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my family, there was a very sacred aspect to all of life, the interconnectedness, the closeness to earth, because it was a mother that took care of you and you shouldn't take more than you needed. Mm -hmm. Never. It never failed to disturb my father to take a life. Mm -hmm. My family was not that redneck family. It was like, Hoo-yah! you know, that is not how I was raised. It was always, there was always a silent moment of reflection. The, the moment we took an animal's life, it's heavy, yeah. really heavy. You know, it's a heavy thing to take a life. I see the urge why people would want to like cut off from it and try to feel nothing, but it's, it's, it's heavy. You know, we'd uh, butcher chickens and those kinds of things. I tried to uh, butcher a chicken for a story. I'm a news reporter too. And I couldn't do it. I went to this small farm. I live in Seattle. It was out in Washington. And the whole idea was to watch the farmer do it and then do it myself. But it's so visceral that, you know, they have them upside down in that cone and slitting the throat. And it's just, I couldn't do it. I mean, I will say I I was still able to eat chicken after that. I didn't have that effect on me, but I couldn't do it myself. There, It's a holy sacrament to be part of. It Mm -hmm. is a real, real thing. Yeah. And not easy. You didn't have electricity. How did you freeze? You said you had all this fish. How did you guys store this meat and the fish? For my dad's whole childhood, it was ice boxes, things outside. In the summer, it was just fresh food. You just keep it, mm. you know, fresh. You had to time going into winter and how you prepared for that, root cellars and things like that. 
Uh, for me growing up, it was partially that. And then eventually we did get electricity out to one of the barns. And so we were able to have freezers and things like that. So you went away to school when you were 15 to the Midwest. I mean, it was kind of a boarding school, an art school. What was it like suddenly being in civilization and eating food in this cafeteria? I'm assuming you ate in a cafeteria. What was that like? It was a big adjustment moving down to the States. It was uh, well-off kids. I didn't know there were that many well-off people in the world. It was kind of mind-blowing to me. I showed up on campus with a really large skinning knife on my belt and almost got kicked out of school because they were like, you can't have a knife. And I was like, what? Who doesn't carry a skinning knife on their belt? Like, it was so weird to me. Like, I'm like, what do you people do? (laughs) And they, of course, just thought I was from Mars. Food was the biggest adjustment for me. I was raised eating incredibly good real food. I was very poor, but we ate like kings. I mean, we had fresh butter, fresh milk. Being poor in a city is very hard. Being poor on a homestead is much easier. A lot of work, but you eat better. So it was my first time dealing with processed foods. I had a lot of anxiety. It was my first time having panic attacks when I went away. I had unprocessed what now would be called trauma, but that word, I don't even know if it existed back then. And so I definitely began eating my feelings. I didn't know what that was either, but I definitely gained a ton of weight, um, definitely had an unhealthy relationship with food and had to really get a grip on it. And realizing a huge part of it was... I'd never been around processed food before. It's addictive. Biofeedback doesn't work the same way. I started having health problems too. And so I began to look at food as medicine and trying to rent every book I could from the library. Learning this stuff before the internet was very arduous. There weren't a lot of people talking about it. They were the very out there hippies, you know, talking about food as medicine. It was very fringe. And then that got me into herbology and studying herbology. Are those all things that you still do today? Yeah. I'm a student at heart. Like, Mm -hmm. I love learning. And I've been really fortunate to have some incredible mentors in both those spaces. It's so interesting. I had this conversation with my coworker the other day. Someone who works here has chickens, and they brought in a dozen eggs and gave them to my coworker who was trying to get rid of them. Like, does anyone want these? And of course, I was like, me, I want them. And she whispers, she confides, and she says, I know this seems weird, but I'm grossed out that these are from a chicken. I just want to buy them at the grocery store. I know those are eggs, but those it's like too close. And I just couldn't believe that because I thought we were all trying to get the chickens from the backyard. And she was just telling me that she trusts packaged food more than she does fresh food. And I thought, what has happened to us as humans that we trust these companies and food that comes down a conveyor belt? That's clean, where natural food is not. It makes sense, though. What we have a relationship with, we value. And when you lose a relationship with something, you stop valuing it. You stop Mm -hmm. knowing how to relate to it. We've become so detached from the earth. We quit having a relationship with water. We quit having a relationship with death. And it's not sacred. It's no wonder that we pollute. We don't have a relationship to the earth. It's no wonder we think a fresh egg is gross because we don't have a relationship to what it even is or how it works. And you have a lot of marketing bodies that are very invested in in perpetuating this idea that real food is unsafe. Right. When we come back, Jewel reveals her last meal. There are two dishes on the table, one that's a little bit city and one that is very country.
what would you choose to eat for your last meal? Gosh. Um, I mean, can anybody eat when they're facing death? That's always the thing that's like really troubled me about this question. I think I would just be throwing up. Yeah. Like in all honesty. I don't think I can... <laughs> well, it's but... just a catalyst for conversation. So okay. there doesn't have to so be I don't a real really death. contemplate death while I'm digesting. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, what's my favorite meal? Yeah. What would you eat on your birthday if you could have anything you wanted? See, that I can process. Yeah. That I, can deal with. I don't feel like the heavy metaphysical, like I'm going to face death thing. Okay. I would, I like sushi. That's something I just don't have as, as much access to. So I really love, yeah, I like sushi. What is your favorite sushi when you go somewhere? What do you order? Um, I like things with yummy, like homemade ponzu sauce type things, mm-hmm. you know, so like some yellowtail with some kind of yummy devised fresh something, you know, to kind of tickle my taste buds with some kind of flavor. You said you don't have that much access to it. Uh, Do you live somewhere where there's not a big sushi scene or do you not eat it when you're on tour very much? I live in the Rockies and so we're a little bit landlocked. I'm a Mm -hmm. little bit more hesitant to do it, although I do. But when I go to LA and more places like that, bigger cities that have access to sushi grade fish, I, I partake more and more. What is your favorite food from childhood? You know, I was looking and seeing your dad makes these bear lard biscuits. Bear lard biscuits are my hands down favorite food. Maybe that would be my last meal food. Oh my God. It's so good. Bear lard is so good to bake with. It's so good in pie crusts. It's a great hand cream, you know, like we make homemade hand creams where we mix like some cottonwood salve and the bear lard and maybe some beeswax sort of to get a nice consistency. But yeah, I'd say that. Does it have a different taste than other kinds of fats that you would make a biscuit with? Yeah, it has a real distinct flavor, but it's not gamey. It's a little hard to describe, but it does have a very, I'd say it's nutty. It has like a nutty quality. Interesting. Um, Yeah. For her last meal, Jewel wants sushi and or bear biscuits. So I was thrilled to hear that Jewel was into bear biscuits. That's great. That's Clay Newcomb, seventh generation Arkansas, publisher of Bear Hunting Magazine, Bear Hunter, and host of Meat Eaters Bear Grease Podcast. I love making bear biscuits. And essentially, you could take your favorite biscuit recipe and wherever it calls for oil or shortening or butter, you just put bear fat in there. Makes for a great biscuit. Bear Grease is known for its use in pastries, pie crusts. You don't taste it. It just tastes great and it's light and fluffy and it gives you some good calories that you need. For people who don't know how we've never heard the term bear grease, define it. So bear grease would be the rendered fat of a bear. When you harvest any type of mammal mammal that has a lot of fat, you basically melt the fat down into a liquid oil that then becomes shelf stable for very long periods of time unrefrigerated. Bear grease, bear fat is essentially rendered down, melted down bear tallow. I live in Seattle and I do a lot of hiking. And this time of year, you do see bear hunters out there. Like I ask people, what are you hunting for? And it's usually bear. Uh, And it's really interesting, the psychology, because I'm not a hunter. And my first reaction is horror because I think bears are so cute. But then I think about my values, which is I'm not pro factory farming and bears are not an endangered species. These bears are not at all. And I think, well, if this is how they're getting their meat, maybe they're not even going to the grocery store. They're actually doing a better job than I am 
why am I so reactive to this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I really like the way you've processed through that because some people have a hard time getting to where it sounds like you're at. All these labels that we pay big bucks for in the supermarket, organic, sustainable, ethically raised, ethically harvested, like all these terms that we go to Whole Foods and pay major bucks for is what the hunters go out and do on our own. And people that don't understand or don't have some historical connection to utilizing bear meat, bear grease, bear fat, bear hides inside of their world, it's kind of like, why would you kill that animal? And most people would not associate bear meat as being something that would be desirable. But Rachel, bear meat actually fueled the American frontier early on, probably more than any other species. And bear meat is fantastic. And we utilize more of a black bear in terms of its hide, its fat, and its meat, probably more than any other species that's hunted. And so as hunters, we take it very serious, utilizing every part of this animal that we can. It's not intuitive. Why would someone want to go take this animal out? But really, we're deeply invested in wildlife populations thriving. And you said it, but black bear populations in North America, whatever's happening ecologically on this continent is really beneficial for black bears. Do you ever buy meat at the grocery store or is this the only way that you get meat is what you hunt? We do eat some chicken. We would buy that chicken from my neighbor who's a pasture poultry farmer. We really don't buy beef other than occasionally I will splurge and buy steak. I would realistically say 85% of the meat that we eat at our house is wild game. Like Clay mentioned, bears were once an extremely valuable resource for people on this continent. According to Atlas Obscura, Native American tribes used bear fat to weatherproof their knives and bows, to repel insects, even to predict the weather. European settlers thought that bear grease would treat hair loss, and it was very common for everyone to be eating bear meat until about 1900. Roast leg of bear was served to 3,000 guests at a Manhattan dinner thrown in Charles Dickens' honor. Even a 1957 edition of Gourmet Magazine's Gourmet Cookbook includes three recipes for bear. So why did bear and bear grease go out of fashion? As the story goes with a lot of North American wildlife, by the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, plus or minus, much of North American wildlife was extirpated from their range. Bears were gone. And so a lot of the family traditions, the ways that bears were used, were lost. It was a combination of bears being overhunted, the sale of wild game being outlawed in the early 1900s, and forests being turned into farmland. Why waste energy hunting for a bear when you could raise pigs, chicken, and cattle. Do you know anything about this? Part of it had to do with the teddy bear that came about from Theodore Roosevelt. And once people started identifying with this cute little teddy bear, then they really started to have more of an emotional connection with live bears as well and didn't want to eat them or shoot them. So the teddy bear, oh, we just did a full robust podcast series on a man named Holt Collier. Holt Collier was a freed slave that became a market hunter and a hunting guide in Mississippi and guided Teddy Roosevelt on what became known as the teddy bear hunt, where Holt Collier roped a black bear, tied it to a tree, 
and went and got Teddy Roosevelt, who wasn't there with him, who was on a bear hunt, supposed to kill a bear, brings Roosevelt over and says, I got your bear here. He's tied to a tree. Roosevelt refuses to shoot the bear tied to a tree, which was good that he didn't. And the press got a hold of it, and they called it Teddy's Bear. And that became the teddy bear, which became a child's toy. And to anthropomorphize wildlife. But yeah, the teddy bear probably endeared people to the bear in a way that uh, didn't help the cause of conservation through hunting. Your kids who grew up eating bear meat and are used to seeing their dad and probably other relatives hunting bear, did they have teddy bears? You bet they did. Yeah. You bet they did. Three of my kids have harvested bears and, uh, oh man, deep respect for them. And they love their teddy bears. Hmm. So we, we can, we can live in that space, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Besides biscuits and, you know, using the fat, what do you like to make with bear? What are your favorite recipes? My wife and I, we have four kids. We've raised our kids a wild game. Ground meat is king. We use bear meat for spaghetti, taco meat. We use bear meat for burgers. I also love to smoke bear meat eight or nine hours and slow cook it. Kind of a Southern tradition for wild game is to take a backstrap or a loin, dice it up into small quarter inch to half inch sections, dip it in buttermilk, dip it in flour, dip it back in the buttermilk, back in the flour. So you double batter it and then fry it. You can fry your bear meat in bear oil. Chicken fried uh, bear. You bet. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I mean, that is a go-to. I really like simple stuff. My wife and family left this last weekend. I went and made a big pot of bear chili and lived off it the whole weekend and would still be living off of it if they hadn't come home. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Jewel explains why you should never steal cheese from a wild Alaskan woman. family still lives in Homer, Alaska. In fact, her dad, brothers, and extended family are featured on a long-running Discovery Channel show called Alaska, The Last Frontier. It's a reality show about how they live on the family's 80-year-old homestead. And we have now arrived at the part of the show where I am issuing you a warning. If you are sensitive to stories about animals being killed, this is where you're going to want to skip ahead about a minute and a half. Can you tell the story of your grandma and the cat and the cheese? It's going to give everybody the wrong impression of my entire family, but let's do it. Okay. Um, yeah, my my grandmother, you know, raised eight children in the middle of nowhere, no roads. You talk about isolation, incredible isolation, and food was incredibly precious. You're talking eight children and two adults, 10 people to share one chicken. Food was so precious, right? And not always plentiful enough. And my grandfather was gone often. He was traveling, an adventurer. He became a state senator. And so this woman was alone running a ranch with eight children in the middle of nowhere with no electricity. Uh, So every resource was precious. Sometimes she got shipments of cheese in. um, And there was like a huge five-pound block of cheddar that came in. And she put it out in the icebox behind the house. And she went out there to go get the cheese. And it's hard to describe to people like when you don't have food, like what a treat it is. So exciting to get a block of cheese or chocolate or something like that. So anyway, she went out there to get this five pound block of cheese and the icebox 
door is open and the cheese is gone. Mm. And she looks down and there's this cat that is now enormous with five pound block of cheese in its belly. And so she just took the cat and she killed it, cooked it, took the cheese out of its stomach, made a cheese sauce oh. and served the kid's cat with cheese sauce. Oh my so. God. <laughs> it was very fresh apparently in there. It just was just, just eaten. And it never even dawned on my dad to tell me that story. It was so unextraordinary to him. It was just... Just a normal dinner. <laughs> so your family still lives in Alaska. They have a TV show. I haven't seen it. Would love to. It seems like they're still living a lot of the same ways you did when you were growing up. You live in the Rockies. Do you still do foraging? Do you do any of the things that you did to eat when you were a kid? Not much. I'll forage mm-hmm. for mushrooms every fall, but that's about it. I teach my son about a lot of the plants. We share a lot of the plants where I live now with Alaska. And so there's a lot of the foliage and botanicals that I do know and what's edible and what isn't. Yeah. But other than that, no, I'm, I travel, you know, like as a musician, it's just I don't I don't have a garden even. Well, speaking of your new album is called Free Will and Woman. Can you talk about what's behind that title? Yes. When I was discovered at 18, I had a very ambitious goal, as kids do. I wanted to be one of the best singer songwriters of all time. I hoped to have a career arc that was 50 and 60 years. So I knew that I definitely had my work cut out for me that a, I just have to keep fighting to be a great writer. And that's hard and not a gimme. And, you know, writing this record was hard. This was the first record I've written from scratch in my entire career. I've always had hundreds of songs in my back catalog and I could just pick any song on any genre I wanted. So I wanted this to be from me, who I was now as a 48-year-old woman that's lived the life that I've lived, that's a single mom. I wanted to come from who I am now because I fought hard to be who I am now. I wrote 200 songs to get the 11 that made it on the album. I get why middle-aged artists do a crap ton of drugs (laughs) to develop a new sound in their middle age. I want to be a woman in the music business at my age. This isn't a kind industry to women ever, but I'm a free woman in this country. I get to go about my life as I see fit. And I wasn't given, I had to fight so hard again and again to get in a position of liberty where I get to call my own shots, where I make my own money, where I support my son, where I get to make the music I want. So I wanted the record to have that sense of empowerment, not as someone still trying to be cute or sexy, but as just from a total feeling of empowerment. Yeah. Going back to one of your children's albums, there's a song called The Supermarket Song when you talk about grocery shopping. Do you like grocery shopping? Hate it. (gasps) I'm a strike shopper. Like I have my list. I get in there and I get out. It's like a green ops, like Navy SEAL thing. I'm like, (laughs) in and out under nine minutes. Let's go. What do you not like about it? I don't like shopping at all. Okay. Like I don't like clothing shopping. I don't like, yeah, it's not really my, my jam. Do you still eat what's called the biblical diet? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. I might have woken up next to a bag of potato chips this morning. Um, (laughs) A lover from last night, a bag of potato chips. Yeah, had a naughty, naughty night Mm. with my potato chips. So not that strict, but Uh yeah, I try to eat whole grains, whole foods, um, unprocessed foods, and to teach my, my son about it. Does it have anything to do with religion? Nope. Biblical diet means eating food as if modern farming techniques weren't available. And it was more like during the time of Christ or something like that. Yes. Try to find whole grains. You try to find heirloom grains. It's harder and harder, you Mm -hmm. know, with genetic mutation. I I suspect a real strict biblical diet is almost impossible. But whether it's biblical or not, I don't know. But I do try to just eat whole foods, organic foods, and know that what I'm putting in my body is a big deal. 
And that was Jewel's last meal. Her new album, Freewheelin' Woman, is out now. And starting tomorrow, you can pre-order it on vinyl. Find a link to that in the show notes. I also highly recommend following Jewel on Instagram or TikTok. She is deeply funny and truly one of my very favorite accounts to follow. Well, thank you so much, Jewel. It was so lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your time and just keep being awesome and entertaining us all online and on stage. Thanks. And who would have thought I'd love TikTok and that so much? It's like my favorite. <laughs> for some reason, just brings up my dorkiness. It makes me so happy. You're really good at it. I think it is a skill. Like when I try to do it, sometimes I feel so awkward. I feel like you're so comfortable. Uh, yeah, I know. I just embrace the awkward. The uh-huh. awkward is Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Clay Newcomb, host of Meat Eaters Bear Grease podcast. Rachel, my podcast. We use bear grease as a metaphor for things that are forgotten but relevant. So on our podcast, we talk about history, anthropology, unique and wild stories. This episode was produced by me and Laura Scott. The music, as always, by Prom Queen. I am not nearly as entertaining as Joel, but you can follow me on Instagram as well. Hello, Rachel Bell. B-E-L-L-E. All right, let's go through the checklist. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so you get episodes as soon as they come out. Please leave us a review or tell a friend. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I never really get nervous for interviews, and I was nervous, and I was telling my friend, why am I nervous? And she's like, because it's Jewel. It's Jewel. Yeah. She's an icon. I was like, yeah, I know. You're right. (laughs) Exactly. Well, this will be a fun one. I was wondering, I was thinking about, like, growing up, would you ever expect to have just one name to be a Cher or a Madonna? It's like, I'm just Jewel. (laughs) I really grew up admiring Barbie. No, I didn't. I think just say what you want to say and I can always edit it. Okay. Yeah. There's lots of versions of the bear fat story, man. We can go big or we can go small. Oh my God. Well, now I don't even, (laughs) I mean, you're going to have to guide me then about the bear fat story. (laughs) You can introduce me as the the host of Meat Eaters Bear Grease podcast. Uh, I mean, that's my professional title. What's your non-professional title? (laughs) Well, you know, that's a good question. Bear Grease (laughs) connoisseur, maybe.